It's one thing to put together a project management plan and determine who should do what when. It's entirely another to lead a project. Today, some practical strategy tips for project management. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 176. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. This is a weekly coaching show to help leaders improve their communication, coaching, strategy, productivity, and personal mastery. And today, we're going to take a look at one of the key pieces of this strategy And particularly, we're going to look through the lens of project management. Now, we've mentioned project management on the show before, and many of the topics that we talk about on a regular basis uh, are very directly related to project management. However, we haven't really taken an entire show to look at the importance and the strategy behind project management. And uh, we could do a whole series of shows on this. In fact, there are entire podcasts on project management. I think we'll mention at least one of them today. Um, But I am so glad to welcome someone who really has an expertise in project management, but also is very effective at helping people to utilize good leadership skills in project management. And that is Suzanne Matson. Suzanne is an internationally recognized project leadership coach, trainer, speaker, and consultant. And she is the author of the new book, The Power of Project Leadership, and also of her previous book, The Project Management Coaching Workbook, uh, which is why she's such a great fit for our uh, our community. Uh, Suzanne specializes in helping project managers transform into leaders. Suzanne, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Well, uh, my pleasure. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the intro here that project management, there's, there's so much we could talk about. I mean, you have written an entire book, uh, a couple of books on the topic, and and yet, um, there are there is one thing I think that it's very overarching to your work and to something I think a lot of project managers uh, want to be thinking about, which is transitioning from only being a project manager to also being a leader. And before we get into the details of some of the foundational things about project management, I'm I'm wondering if you could share with us just where you see that transition point and why is that an important transition for project managers to make. Yeah, so from my experience, and I have been in this field for, you know, a good 18 years, I've been managing large large projects and programs. And I've come across lots of people who are project managers, and they are very good with the detail. They're very good with, you know, the minutity of, of planning or, you know, making things happen. But there comes a point when that is just no longer enough. For very junior people, that is where we start. You know, I tell you what to do. And your job is to plan it for me and mm-hmm. deliver it for me. And so that's where young project managers focus. They focus on the, on, on, the, on the skill. They want to become good project managers. But at some point during that career, when, when they start to manage bigger projects, just focusing on those tools and techniques is not enough anymore. They need the whole people aspect. And because a lot of project managers come from a technical background, that is not necessarily uh, a natural skill. So they struggle with how to gain buy-in from, mm. from senior leaders, how to manage the team and motivate the team and, and the people aspects. And, and that is really what separates, I think, the people who do this okay 
from the people who are really brilliant at being able to move things forward in organizations is that ability to engage people, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, you know, we need certain techniques, but it's people who make projects happen. It's people who make change happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I thought it would be good for us to start with that framework because I know today we're going to get into some of the details of you know how do we define projects and and you know how do we utilize some of the strategy because I know that for a lot of the people in our audience those are really important areas for us to look at but but that broader perspective is so important too of remembering that those those people skills the ability to engage the ability to coach are are just are just so important to the entire process. Uh, but it really does start with establishing a, a solid foundation. And in the book, you lay out seven keys that will help people to really lead projects effectively. And one of them is establishing a solid foundation to the project. And I know the thing that you advise people on is starting off with being able to define the project. Now, I'm wondering if maybe we could spend a few minutes there and and really talk about what do we what do you mean by defining a project and why is that a key step in beginning the process of project management? Yes. So, in many organizations, and I think your listeners might might uh, recognize this if if they are doing project work, um, we get an idea, and the next step is well, get it done. You know, when can I get it? When mm-hmm. when when will it be finished? And so we jump, most organizations jump very quickly from the idea stage to the doing stage. And if it's a very simple project where we know exactly what we need to do and we've done it before, that might work. Mm -hmm. But most projects are not like that. Most projects, there is a level of complexity. And so assuming that we just know what we need to do is a is a can be a, a, a um, very bad assumption. So defining the project is all about saying, okay, now before we get going, what is it that we need to deliver? Why do we need to deliver it? Because I'm sure that all you and all your listeners, we, we realize that it is in delivering value that the project is really um, can be justified. I don't really care about someone going out and delivering a great piece of work if it doesn't add any value. Mm. So when we define a project, it's about stepping back and saying, why do we want this? What benefits will it lead to? And what is it that we want in, in the bigger picture, in the bigger frame? And how are we going to measure success? Who will be accountable for this? It's not Normally, it's not the project manager who is accountable. The project manager may be responsible for delivering this project, but there will be someone within the organization who is uh, accountable at a higher level. And that person will oftentimes um, own the business case. So that's also what we do when we define a project. We look at, you know, does this make sense? Uh, what is the business case behind it? How is this project going to help um, our clients to do their jobs better? So that's that's really what we do in defining. We shape the initiative um, before we start planning it in more detail. Suzanne, I've certainly seen this happen before, but I'm wondering for those who may not have thought of thought of this before. It, I think sometimes this is a real disconnect for people, is because there's the assumption for I think a lot of us that 
if the organization's doing the project, there must be a good reason for us doing it. Or if someone created this project, there must be a good reason. And yet that really isn't always the case. Like not every organization really goes through and does that due diligence. How is it that we end up with projects or on large initiatives that people haven't really thought that through or thought through like what's the value that's being offered? You know, that's such a good question. And according to the PMI, which is the Project Management Institute, it's the largest, it's American, it's the largest project management body in the world. They do quite a lot of surveys. And their surveys show that the majority of projects are actually not successful. Mm. Right. So de- depending on the exact survey you look at, it could be 40%, it could be 50 or 60%. But a large percent of projects fail. And one of the reasons is exactly that. We don't step back and look at whether this initiative will add value. And I think, well, there are many reasons. Some of the reasons are that we think very short term. And there are managers and organizations that don't stay long enough to be held accountable for some of the decisions they've made, unfortunately. Or they haven't been long enough in the organization to understand the impact of what they're kicking off. Or they do things to look good. They are a new manager, they, are being, they must be seen to do something, to, to make change happen. And it's, it, they are, they're too quick. They need quick results because we live in a world where we want instant gratification and instant results. And so sometimes in order to create a project which adds much more value, we need to take just that extra month up front or whatever it is um, to make sure that it will add value. Does that make sense? I think it's a short-term uh, thinking that does it. Yeah. Oh, I very much agree. And I, I think one of the checkpoints for us as leaders is to ask ourselves, is our organization rewarding that? Are we? Is the culture of our organization such that we are asking for or even expecting instant action on everything or very quick action? And does that run contrary to the due diligence that many of us would want to do when we're thinking about putting together the strategy for a project? Because I, I think that's something that can really get in the way a lot of the time, Suzanne, is, is if the organization hasn't really put value on that process. Yes. And it's about getting the balance right, because when we have too much process, then it hinders but too little process is also a problem. So it's it's getting that balance right and, and valuing that due diligence um, can be, you know, has merits. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm wondering if maybe you could share an example with us of uh, what's a time that you've worked with an organization or maybe know of an organization that has it maybe was on one side or the other of that process, either, you know, too much time on process or not really taking that time at all, and was able to do something to find that zone that really was helpful for them? And, and what was the shift that they made? Oh, you know, a lot of my, my career, I've worked in investment banking. And uh, time is not really on our side, investment banking. Yeah. So I think they've been, uh, they, they, they like to jump the hoops where they can. Now there's much more regulation coming in in finance, uh, financial services. But certainly, um, we were in a situation once where there was a uh, there were trading opportunities in in Hong Kong for a certain new financial instrument. This goes back to, you know many years, and um, so the business would say to us, you know, we need to be able to trade this new instrument. It was not a product that we were offering at that time, but we needed to really um, go ahead and we needed to do some investigations on how how to get this done, and they were so impatient they just they just wanted us to do it. So we started building it. 
And by the time that we were halfway through the build, they said, oh, the, the market opportunity has gone away. So we don't want it anymore. So they canned the whole initiative. Mm. And I saw that. I was in that bank for um, five years. I saw that same thing happen three times because they were too impatient. Um, and we had, we had different managers. And, and, and at the end, when I saw it the last time, I, I went up and it was a new manager who joined the bank on the business side. And I said, I said I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this again. And my manager said, you know, no, no, no. How can you, how can you dispute the customer? You know, we've got to do it. And I said, you know what? <laughs> I've, I, I've seen this too many times. Can we go back and challenge them? So I think it's when you have, when you see circles um, repeat themselves and you have the guts to actually stand up and say to someone who's more senior than you, actually, this does not make sense. And many project managers feel inferior to the, to the client. They don't dare to say that. Um, and especially if a new manager, you know, new manager you want to impress. But, but that's so important in order to create that shift. Well, this, this is just a perfect example of what you talk about is the importance of personal leadership and communication and people skills, because that takes courage. And that's the kind of thing that you don't see on the project management spreadsheet or whatever system you're using is, is to have the courage to be able to ask questions like that. Um, and, you know, speaking of, of that, one of the, one of my favorite things that you have in the book here is uh, you mentioned be strong enough to show weakness and to ask the dumb questions. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Cause I, I, I think this is something that's really a key point for so many of us. Yes. So imagine you are with a client and um, what happens is that you, you're kicking off your project and you want to do a good job. And um, again, you believe that your client knows better than you. So your client has said, we want to trade this instrument or whatever it is. And you go, okay, okay, um, let me see what I can do and let me get it done. Now, if the project manager just executes orders, there is a big risk, as we've just seen, that it might lead to nothing or it might be something that actually doesn't serve their needs. So some of these, as I call dumb questions that we must be able to ask is to, to inquire about the business scenario. So most project managers work for a client who, is, who, who knows their business better than, than the project manager does. So, for instance, asking questions like, um, so talk me through, Mr. Client, you know, when we get you this product, what are you going to be doing differently from today? How is this project or the output of the project going to help you um, make more money in the business or, or be better at what you do? Talk me through the process that you use on the business side. Um, or Another dumb question, can, can, I shadow, can I shadow you guys for a day? Can I sit with your users? Um, many people don't do that because they feel, oh, I, I should already know the answer to this. I should already know um, how, my, how my client does business. And also asking, what does success look like? Mm. You know, they're very straightforward questions, but unfortunately, oftentimes they're not, they're not being asked. And this is the kind of thing that our own confidence and sometimes our own ego probably gets in the way with, I would imagine, in, in being able to ask some of these questions. 
Oh yes, absolutely. It's um, it's really that that it is ego, as you're saying. It, it's that about um, well, I should I should know better, and I don't want to um, uh, like show that I don't know. And and this shows up in so many places of um, of project management, or actually, I think in, in in management in general, this whole notion of asking for help as well. Well, what's so wrong about asking for help? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a coach, as you mentioned, and, and uh, the gentleman I was coaching today, um, he doesn't like to show that he doesn't know all the detail. What I'm trying to explain to him in a very complex world, we cannot know all the detail, nor should we know all the detail. What does that say about something if they want to know all the detail? I think you alienate your team and you put a huge amount of um, pressure on your own shoulders. Plus, you don't give people the flexibility to be able to do it in a better way or a more creative way than you might have done. And uh, you know what, what you just said really resonates with me, Suzanne, because I this is something I know I've struggled with, and in some ways still do. Um, my wife's been a great teacher for me on this over the years. Uh, a few years ago, she said something to me of like, you know, you really um, you you like to uh, uh, how did she say it? She said it in a very nice way. <laughs> <laughs> she said, you don't, you don't like not having an answer to something, do you? <laughs> um, mm, and, yeah. you know, it's interesting when uh, we talked about that over a few occasions, and I noticed that that was something that I really did struggle with. And when I became aware of it, I started changing how I asked questions in the business context too. And I found that when I was willing to ask the, um, to ask the dumb question in a business context, a lot of times when I do that, uh, I'll have uh, every, like it, other people will come up to me after the meeting. They'll be like, I'm so glad you asked that. I didn't know what they were talking about either or something like that. Just it, it makes me realize that that's something that there's a lot of value in doing and also that a lot of us really do struggle with because we feel like we have to have the answers and we have to have it all figured out. So can I share an experiment with you? Please, please. So to, to your point, um, they have made experiments, um, I think psychologists have made experiments, where you have a whole lot of people in an audience, and you ask a very simple question of the audience. Let's just say, what is two plus two? I don't think it was that simple, but for argument's sake, you go around the room and people say, um, five, 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 and you sit there, the person being experimented on, thinking, well, I quite clearly know that it's four. I don't know why they're all saying five, but I feel uncomfortable, so... I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say five as well. Mm -hmm. Now, they do the same experiment, and someone in the audience says two or seven, something random. And when it comes to the person being experimented on, they are more likely to dare to say four, because someone else said something which wasn't five. Mm. And so, exactly to your point, if we just walk around in meetings. And say the random thing, say something which is not what everybody else is agreeing to. We might just help someone come out of their shell and actually question what's going on or talk about that elephant in the room. Yeah, yeah. What's the time you've seen that happen, Suzanne, with a client or organization you've worked with where someone had the courage to ask that question that maybe was the quote-unquote dumb question or just something out of context or that the group hadn't thought of and, and got the organization or the team thinking a little differently than they might have otherwise before? You know what? I haven't seen that a lot. 
And it's very unfortunate. It's not something, it, I, it may be because I, I, I live in Britain <laughs> and people are quite polite here. And I think that can be a real hindrance. There isn't a lot of tendency to, uh, to ask those questions, but it happens. And when that happens, that we get a new manager in, maybe from a, who's not British, from a different culture, it can shift. It can really shift the dynamic, not just of a meeting, but of a whole project team. Because someone dares to say something and someone dares to ask the questions of why. So just talk me through that again. H how do you come to that conclusion? I don't follow. And everybody else is thinking that they don't follow, but they don't dare to say it. And that's really, it's, it's exercising that authenticity muscle. It's exercising the muscle of it's okay to stand out and have an opinion. And I think that's one of the big differentiators between managers and leaders. Leaders do what is right. doesn't matter if it feels uncomfortable or if it reflects badly on you. No, if, if this doesn't make sense, let's say it. You don't have to say it in a nasty way. You can just be gentle and say, I don't get this. Can you talk me through it? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think that's a great coaching opportunity for all of us. And, and whether we're managing projects or not, I think one one sure opportunity for everyone today who's listening is to think like, what's a time that I hear something today and I just don't? I don't understand, or maybe I don't fully appreciate what's being talked about here. And just to have the courage to ask that dumb question or the obvious question. And, you know, what what good things can come out of that when we really do, you know, are willing to just think broadly and think like, you know, let's ask the obvious and talk about the elephant in the room. And if we're willing to do that, we can get some good dialogue going in our organization. Yes. And I like you use the word courage. And we always say that leaders are courageous but that makes it sound like you know they they do dangerous things but actually you're right it's in those small questions it's in the detail it takes courage to stand out and ask those questions and isn't it interesting how most of the things i mean i know there's exceptions but it seems to me that most of the things that we really fear about doing in organizations are not really things that have a lot of danger tied to them. Um, you know, when you think about like asking a dumb question in a room or something like that, it's not really a dangerous thing to do. And yet for so many of us, we do struggle with that. Like we just, we, we fear how we'll be judged or how we'll be seen. And, and it really is a stopping point for us, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is fear. So it, it I think the body, see, the body feels it as fear. Um, as you're saying, how am I going to be judged? With, with this impact, you know, how my managers look upon me, am, am I, you know, does this show that I don't know? And the other one is people don't like to say no yeah. because they're, they're, they have too much on their plate or whatever it is. Does it reflect, does it reflect badly on them in, in the terms of, in, in the sense that I'm not capable of doing it? So we, we don't want to say no because we're afraid that it shows that we, we, we can't, that, you know, that we have no capacity. Mm, interesting. Well, let's, t let's talk a little bit about risk because I know that that's one of the things that when we're managing a project, we really do need to think through as well. You know, speaking of fear, there are real, there are real risks and there are real dangers out there in the, in the world and in our organizations. And I think that this is something that if, I know that I have not had as much experience with this in project management, and I think for people who haven't, they don't, they just don't know where the roadmap is for this. Um, and I know there's two things you talk about with risks, with risk in the book is not properly dealing with the expected risks, and then not paying enough attention to the unexpected risks. And I was wondering if maybe you could say a little bit about both. 
Yes. So when we start a project, most people will know that there are some risks involved and they might even log them on a risk log. And these are expected risks. They are the risks that we can identify. So let me give you some examples. For instance, let's say that um, we're rolling out a change and we know it's expected that there might be some resistance to change. Mm-hmm. But what do we do about it? You know, re- resistance to change is an interesting one. It's a real risk, actually. It means that your users might disengage. But we don't really know, and it's hard, and we don't know. It's just because people are difficult, so we don't do anything about it. Um, another key risk that often I often see is key man dependency. So we have a technical person or a, a business person or a subject matter expert who knows it all. They're a key man dependency. If something happens to them, oh my God, then we don't know what to do because the project isn't documented or whatever it is. That's another risk, which oftentimes we are aware of it, but we don't do anything about it. Because it's hard or we don't have time or we think, again, is that short-term way of thinking. So there are just two examples of risks that oftentimes are actually not mitigated. Mm. They're just left until they become problems. And so we deal with them when they become problems, but there's sometimes some of that planning in advance would be able to mitigate some of that before it even becomes an issue. Yeah. Something I talk a lot about in the book is this difference between being proactive and reactive. When we're reactive, we have a lot of stuff on our plate and we just try to get it all done as it comes to us, including risks that emerge or risks that become issues. When we are proactive, we try in advance to anticipate what might happen. That is at a technical level with risks. It's also at a people level. How do I build better relationships today that's going to help me tomorrow? Mm, I love it. I love it. And of course, there's always the unexpected risks too. And you know, it's interesting that this, I think this happens in every project. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of a time I've been involved in a project and there hasn't been something unexpected that comes up. And yet, there doesn't seem to me, Suzanne, to be a lot of allowance or even thought put forth to what happens when the unexpected happens. Not that obviously mm. we don't know what it is because it's unexpected, but 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 just the thought or the even the time frame or the flexibility to think through that there is going to be some unexpected obstacles that we're going to run into. Do you run into that same thing? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it is interesting because people say to me, if it's unexpected, we can't do anything about it. Well, maybe we can. So if something is truly unexpected and it hits you, so we, some people call that a black swan. It actually, first of all, you can put aside contingency in your plan. Contingency just means that you have a buffer in case something unexpected should happen. But senior managers often cut that away. It's slack in the plan. You know, we want it quicker and faster. What, where can you cut? So we end up with plans that have absolutely no contingency, no buffer. So that's one problem. But we can actually try to minimize these amount of the black swans. We can try to anticipate them, even if they're unknown to the project team. And probably the only way we can do that is to ask someone outside of the team. Because, you know, we all know it, you know, the world has a vast amount of knowledge. And if you don't know it, chances are someone else will know about it. 
Mm. So let's say that you are brainstorming risks on your project and you come up with uh, 20 risks. But this big unknown is still out there. You don't know what you don't know. So a really good way for teams is to, to broaden out, ask other experts, ask people in other industries. What, when I say we're going to do this project, what, you know, what are you thinking? Because these unexpected risks um, are unexpected because we think in our normal in our normal patterns. Someone in the automotive industry, you know, would completely see that. Oh my God, you've got a risk there. I would do that differently. So it's really about broadening our horizon and asking other teams, other industries, and and sharing knowledge. Speaks to the importance of us having a strong network, doesn't it? And. Uh... You know, I'm I, from an anecdotal standpoint. I imagine, Suzanne, just in my experience, that a lot of organizations don't take the time to do that. That really might be helpful to them in identifying some of those risks. Yes, and also we don't allow people to actually, um, oftentimes, go out, expand, attend conferences, uh, share, network, as you're saying, because we have to be seen as to sit by our desk and get work done. And it's such a limited, such a limited way of thinking. And particularly today, too, because we, you know, we've all been empowered by technology and the ability to connect with people so easily at the, at the computer. And yet, in some ways, that does hold us back from making some of those connections that we could more effectively by just, you know, taking the time to reach out and to make that that one on one connection and to go to that conference, because those are the kinds of people that will then be helpful to us in the long run. Of course, we want to be helpful to them too when they reach out to us with a similar request. Yeah, it's really people that matter. But but also when, when we go to these things, we pick up learning from what people do elsewhere. Different industries do things differently. And and as we learn from each other, we, we kind of take the best from, from what we've seen. That's why rotation is so important in, in, in companies um, to break down silos and make sure that people learn from each other. Sometimes it's not external to the company. Sometimes it's just learning internally as well. Well, speaking of getting perspective from folks elsewhere, you know, I was really interested in what you said about, um, about you, 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 by the way, we're talking, uh, you're in London and I'm in Southern California, which is fabulous. London's one of my favorite cities in the world, as uh, you and I were talking before we started recording. And you mentioned that, uh, that, it's part of the British culture to be very polite and not necessarily to ask some of those questions that maybe should be asked. And I, my sense is in the States that that's a little bit less of an obstacle, although I do think that that definitely shows up in, in organizations, but we don't have as much of that that politeness for better or worse. Um, but I'm curious, Suzanne, just, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you have an opinion on this, but um, as, uh, you know, as an outsider to the States, because we do have a lot of people in the States who listen to this show, um, are there things that you see culturally that are either helpful or can be obstacles in the American culture that that may be helpful or also put obstacles up for us from a standpoint of project management? No, I th I think from from my experience, the the American culture is more I think embraceive of um, you know being more direct. It's more direct, and that can be a great advantage. Where I think we. Americans might run the risk when when working with other teams from outside of the states is to hold back a little bit, um, and and let because I, I, and I don't know, but sometimes that directness can be very forthcoming. Yes. And if you want the best out of other people, you have to just pause and wait for people who are not readily sharing for them to share. Yeah. 
so they're, they're just some very basic observations but um but i, I you know, I'm Danish. I'm quite direct, so uh, I, I work quite well with Americans. <laughs> Great. Well, you know, we all have uh, we all have a lot to learn from each other, and I think you know so much more. We are becoming a global economy and just a glo- global teams in so many organizations, and you know, our ability to do some learning about different cultures and learn tendencies really can be helpful to a lot of us, and and picking up strengths from from other cultures and, and, and other teams that will really help us to be more effective too. So, um, you know, speaking of, uh, of helpful and resources, I know you have a ton of resources on your website that would be specifically helpful to people in regards to some of the things we've spoken about today. Um, before we talk about the book, can, uh, would you mention some of those that, and how we can help people can get access to that? Yes. So on my website, which is just my name, S-U-S-A-N-N-E-M-A-D-S-E-N, SuzanneMatson.com, I have gathered all of the resources that I have used in my in my career as a project manager. And they're out there for free. People can just um, uh, register to get access to the resources page. They're everything from um, templates to help define the project. Um, there are risk and issues logs. There are templates that will help someone conduct a steering committee uh, presentation. There are, you know, all sorts, uh, you know, um, um, even uh, tracking sheets for budgets and all all sorts. And and um, they're quite simple because I I don't like to overcomplicate uh, matters. So that's there for people to use and download uh, completely free of cost. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for offering that as a resource. And I'm going to go ahead and place a link to all of uh, those resources that Suzanne mentioned in the show notes. So those of you who uh, are interested can go check that out. And of course, for those who received the weekly leadership guide on Wednesdays, uh, that will be a link at the very top there. So just click on that and it'll take you to all those resources. And if you or your organization are thinking about some of these things and how you can use it to more effectively manage and lead projects, I would really suggest that as a starting point for that. So thanks for making those available. And um, and the book is is out, and so it's called The Power of Project Leadership. And uh, is the best way for folks to get that go, go into Amazon, or is it the, the website, Suzanne? The, if people are from the States, the best way is to go to Amazon.com. Perfect. Yeah, the publisher is is a British, um, and so sometimes there's an advantage of, of of ordering straight through or straight from the uh, the British publisher. But for American listeners, I would say just go to Amazon.com. Okay, great. So if you're uh, if you're in Britain, and I know we have uh, many British listeners, uh, check out the book website. So I'll have a link to that as well. Otherwise, uh, check out Amazon. The book is uh, is already out since we're airing this here in January. So check it out. It is the uh, the Power of Project Leadership uh, with Suzanne Matson. Suzanne, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to meeting you uh, personally when uh, we get out to London next. Thank you. It was a great honor. One takeaway from this conversation for me, for sure, is the willingness and the courage to ask the dumb questions. There are definitely times I have not done that. And missed out on some central things or the big picture perspective, I'd really encourage you to do that as well, particularly if you're going in today or this week into a conversation about a long-term project, or maybe you're in the midst of one and something isn't really clear. It's a really great place to start to really get your head around how you can benefit from 
Suzanne's advice. And, you know, we only hit on about, I don't know, 5% of the book here. We, we set aside about 95% of it in order to really uh, get into some of the details here. So I really encourage you to check out her book and her site. All of the information will be on the show notes here as always, coachingforleaders.com slash 176. And of course, for those of you who get the weekly leadership guide uh, in your inboxes on Wednesday, all of the links will be in there. So definitely watch for that and check it out. And uh, thanks again to her for, uh, for coming on the show today. And as always, I welcome any comments, questions, or feedback you have about this conversation. You can get them to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And I am still taking questions for the next Q&A show. That's going to be episode number 178. And the topic is on accountability. And I have a bunch of questions already, but I would still love to consider your question too. So if you're wondering about how to keep others accountable and how to keep, or maybe also, and more importantly, how to keep yourself accountable. Fair game for episode 178. That's coming up in two weeks. If you have a question uh, for the show, again, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And then finally, please do join the weekly leadership guide. The leadership guide is coming in your inboxes on Wednesdays and includes my thoughts and recommendations on the best articles, podcasts, videos, books, That'll support your development between shows. I hope you're liking that new format and uh, let me know how you like it when you receive it. Uh, It also includes a brief overview and a link to the full weekly show notes for the show each week. So if you, like me, tend to listen when you're on the road to podcasts or out exercising or doing other things around the house and trying to get laundry done in my case, this will give you a good way to follow up later on links and resources that we mention in the show. So uh, a big thank you to the folks who joined the weekly leadership guide this past week. That is Misa Z, Mohammed Sharif, Melissa Sevzik, Esther Kate, Will Sullivan, Darren Monday, Jeff Klein, Elizabeth Hartwig, Sudhir J, Jamie Linden, Meredith Begin, or Big, or Big, or Begin, uh, Gerald McGregor, John Kim, Larissa Thurlow, Nicole Mitik, Rodrigo Lopez, Barbara Stewart, Christopher Balser, Ellie Lee, Pablo Tovar, Tim Binder, my pal Vicky Childs, Laura Sloan, Pip Davy, Craig Ricks, John Panero, Justin Casanova. Jerry Knox, Mark Mowini, David Copeland, Truls Lurad, Donnell Snyder, Tony Dawson, Jackie Drake, Doug Bricky, and Darren Peck. Thank you all for joining the Weekly Leadership Guide. And as a bonus, when you join, you'll get the not only the Weekly Leadership Guides, but you'll get immediate access to download my guide on the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others. It's an 11-page reader's guide and nine-minute video of my top leadership book recommendations, what you can expect from each of the books, a brief summary, plus insights on the two books that I rely on weekly. If all of that sounds good to you, check it out at coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And that's the way to get access. And a big thank you as well this week to uh, my buddy Rajul Koshar out on the East Coast and Dyla21 for your wonderful reviews on iTunes. Thank you, both of you, for doing that. If you have benefited from this show like they have, the two greatest ways you can help uh, me and us to grow the Coaching for Leaders community is number one, to let someone know about the show who you think would benefit. Uh, I am so grateful for those of you and so many of you who have taken the time to recommend this show to colleagues and friends and family. 
And the second way you can help out is to leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. So if you use either of those, coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes or coachingforleaders.com slash Stitcher is the best way to do that. Thank you in advance. And I am looking forward to talking with you again next week. Have a fabulous week. And I'll talk to you on Wednesday on the Weekly Leadership Guide. Take care.